So I want to start off by saying I recently put out a list of my favorite sandwiches in the Bay Area, including one recommendation from Mr. Justin Phillips. Yes, I'm important now. I can feel how important I am. You're an influencer. I'm an influencer. I never thought the day would come. It's about damn time. (laughs) It's a really good place, though. It's Domenico's Italian Deli in Alameda. And what I didn't ask, though, was what your favorite sandwich there was. By the way, you're welcome, Alameda. I hope I get some nice emails from Alameda folks for uh, for showing love to their neighborhood spot. My favorite thing is the Italian combo that has dry salami, ham, cooked salami, bologna, provolone, whatever. It's put on uh, sour. You can get it on sourdough bread. I love like the crunch of it. I love how that the the acidity of it kind of hits your taste buds. There's like a sweetness to it. It's just. And also, it'll make you want to take a nap afterwards. So that's that's kind of what you want in a sandwich. I, I love it. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips. And I'm Solejo. On this episode, we speak with Peter J. Kim, host of Counter Jam, a podcast that celebrates the connection between food and music. Peter talks to us about making the huge leap from practicing law to becoming the founding director of the Museum of Food and Drink. Which is both very fancy, I think. <laughs> we'll teach you about like bread and the wonders of bread, but then take that same curiosity and apply it to all the other foods on your table, like sugar or, you know, orange juice and like these things that like are so quotidian but are really amazing when you dig down into them. He reflects on the idea that we even need a museum of food and drink and talks about some of the really cool exhibitions it hosted. Nowadays he works for Pinterest, so we also bug him about what Pinterest food culture might be. I don't have a Pinterest account, but I do think it's funny that Donald Trump is banned from there. I mean, that is that is pretty funny. I think we should both. uh, You know what? I I was going to lie and say I think we should both make Pinterest accounts. But I have one. I I have one. And that's all I'll say about it. Oh, okay. I'm going to find you. (laughs) Oh, my God. And while I'm doing that, you can listen to this interview. All right, Peter, it's really great to have you, man. This is super exciting for us. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a bunch of topics to talk about. But before we kind of begin that whole journey, I think, you know, especially for people who might not be familiar with your work, which, you know, people get familiar. um, I kind of want to start at the beginning because you used to be a lawyer, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. How did this um, and, and I'm so interested in hearing from you. From, like, going from that realm to, you know, like, diving into food. Like, what what inspires that leap? Like, what, what happened? What broke or what was, you know, just a realization, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's a few different threads coming together. Um, one of which is my parents worked their asses off when I was young. And so I was basically raised on frozen food for a while until I decided I'm going to actually just cook for myself. And so I've been cooking from a, for a really long time. Um, another thread is uh, I in under, when I was a, a college student uh, uh, many moons ago, I read a book called On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. Mm-hmm. And this was like my entree into like, oh my God, food is like so much more than just what we eat, but it goes you know, well beyond the plate. And there's this whole lore and history and culture behind it. And then another thread is uh, the fact that I, I lived abroad for quite a while. And notably, I was um, I, I did the Peace Corps and I was in Cameroon in a relatively small village there. 
uh, and um, and then you know beyond Cameroon, I spent time in Thailand, and I I I, I spent some time in Romania, in the Middle East, in Ethiopia. I lived in Spain. I lived in Argentina. I lived in France, um, and everywhere I went, the common bridge between me and the people around me uh, was always food and drink. And so mm. you know wherever I was, it was like pressing olive oil in Jordan, or like fishing in Cameroon, or pounding fufu in Cameroon, or making pie in the streets of Spain, or you know, grilling in Argentina, uh, I really have developed over time this deep appreciation for um, the diversity of food culture, but also how it unites us. And so I think um, that was there when I was an attorney. And, you know, food has always been a passion of mine. Music has always incidentally been a passion of mine also. And so even while I was an attorney, I really made sure to nurture my personal interests. Mm. And it was through like, going to a lot of food events, knowing a lot of like folks from the food world that I came across uh, a fellow named Dave Arnold, um, who is this sort of like mad scientist figure in the food world here in New York. And he and I started talking about this idea that he had of, shouldn't there be a museum of food and drink? And, you know, it's like, you could just kind of like, a, for any food nerd, it's like, you just put the words museum of food and drink out there. And it's kind of like your brain can kind of like go a lot of places. And so I was super intrigued and loved the concept and really helped him start like developing it. And then it turned out that there's needed to be somebody who was crazy enough to actually make it happen. And so that's when I um, <laughs> quit my job and announced to everybody in my law firm, yo, I'm leaving the firm and I'm going to go start a food museum. So see you later. <laughs> <laughs> that's Wait, so how old were you when you made that transition? Uh, so I met Dave in 2011. Um, and so I was like 31 years old and then when i was in 2012 uh, a year later um i you know i helped him get it set up as like a nonprofit, and whatnot and then it was like time to actually make the thing happen so then that's in 2012 i i quit and look i mean we had no money like nothing i just had like some like notes of like ideas like we want a place where you can like eat what you're learning about the exhibits like you could like learn about aztec food and you could taste space food and you could like understand the science of digestive system the science of flavor the economics <laughs> of coffee like this wondrous place where we could go and learn about culture learn about science economics policy everything but through food and drink and to actually taste your way through the whole thing it's like that's a museum i want to go to right and it that like what's crazy enough is yeah. nothing like that exists in the world and so um that's when i was like well if i want to go to this museum then i gotta make it happen okay wait uh, so how did your parents feel about this transition because <laughs> i can't imagine that was an easy conversation oh, man. i mean it's it's like it's funny it's like i can like laugh about it now but it was just not a laughing matter at the time but you have to understand like in a you know i think a lot of like Asian American kids will get this, but like, you know, my parents grew up poor in South Korea. Their families were like literally torn apart by the Korean War. They came with like no money, one way tickets to the US, not knowing anybody. My dad's a dishwasher. My mom was like working as like a nurse wherever she could. And then they eked out a living, started these like Hallmark stores, and then able to send me to like a really nice school, undergraduate, you know, school. And then, um, and then I got into this like law firm and I had this job and it was like, ah, this is what made that whole struggle worth it. And then I told them, mm. I'm leaving. And by the way, I don't have a salary or anything. And I'm just like, in their eyes, squandering everything to start this fool's <laughs> errand of a project. And straight up, like, my dad stopped talking to me. I mean, like, he just, he started writing me letters. But everything was about how I was a 
was failing him and how um i mean like he said at one point like and it's like i mean it's hard to even like share this but like i mean he said at one point that he would just see the next time we'd see each other would be at his funeral and so like oh um, fuck and so and there's a certain point at which i actually still have a stack of letters from him that are unopened because (laughs) it caused me so much like grief or like just anxiety to like open them and read them and so um you know, and I say this because, and I feel like I can share it because I actually say it with a lot of love because I know where my dad was coming from when he felt that way. And I knew there's nothing mm-hmm. I could do to convince him otherwise. And so, um, and so, yeah, you know, I'll just say like flash forward, like to three years after I started working on this in their mind, you know, my, my mom was supportive, like cautiously supportive. My dad was the one who was, it was like really a rupture in the family. Um, but uh, it was a few years later um it was like christmas and my dad's old you know he was born in 1937 so you know he's quite old and he's there was a a christmas and i was like look dad like life is too short like we need to see each other and so i bought him a ticket to come out to see me and he accepted which was really a big deal and then um it so happened i had a speaking engagement at columbia university and he came and saw me speak and talk about the museum and then he saw like the kids like well, they're not kids, but in my mind, they're kids. But like, you know, the college students like lining up to talk to me about this thing. And it's like the switch went off and he totally got like why I was doing this. And from there on out, like he was like almost like annoyingly supportive. <laughs> where Like he was calling me all the time with ideas <laughs> like, Peter, have you, you need to call Warren Buffett. He'll give you money for the museum. You know, I'm like, all right, dad, I'll call Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I I love that story. And as a matter of fact, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Not to spiral us too much off track here, but the idea of having, you know, parents that came from nothing um and worked to give their children something. Like, you know, Peter, you came from that, you know, Sole, you understand that. I understand that. And when we saw them doing it, like I feel like that generation didn't really for a lot of them didn't know how to fail because it wasn't an option right like they have to make sure they succeed for us and that honestly like was passed down to us especially when we have a path that they're proud of then we deviate from that path and choose something that's more of a passion too we also don't know how to fail when it comes to that because we have to make you know we have to make what they went through worth yeah, it, totally. right? And so for Peter, was that was that part of it for you? Because, like, obviously it was a dream. But I imagine, like, the pers- you know, persistence obviously is a huge part of it. But you probably didn't really understand what failing would be. Like, what, what was your thinking for that? Like, how did your parents' work, you know, inspire you, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think the great irony with that whole situation is that what I did leaving behind a law firm job and starting MoFed was motivated by a really similar sentiment, I think, I suspect, to what drove Mm -hmm. them to go from South Korea to the U.S. You know, like, they went Mm -hmm. into the great unknown, essentially, because they were seeking something, right? And and it was, like, an incredible risk. I mean, if you think about it, it's a much bigger risk for what they did than what I did with MoFag, because I still have, like, a pretty, like, good safety net, you know? Um, but they came on their own. They didn't have any family in the U.S. And yeah, failure is just was just absolutely not an option, you know. Um, 
And I, you know, for me, similarly going to MoFed, it was really about staking a new path and going into something that was quite unknown. And it's just motivated by something different. For them, it was like about finding more economic security. For me, it's about doing something, you know, that more noble, I guess, than uh, I, th- I felt like what my work was as an attorney um, at the time. And so, um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and I think that like I had a, what I would say that really drove me that made MoFed happen was this feeling like failure was not an option. You know, I did have like a safety net, of course, but after like having burned a bridge with my dad, after having like, you know, basically set back my legal career, um, you know, I could have always gone back to it, but I was pretty much stepping away from it and like, you know, um, and, and and hurting any chances of like really going far in, in a legal career. Like, I, I they, for me, like failure was not an option, you know? And like when your back is against the wall and you have that fire under your ass, the things you will do, I mean, like there's no boundary, you know? It's just like, <laughs> I will make this shit happen one way or the other. And like, if you don't have that, then there's a point before that, which you're like, forget this, you know, like it's not worth it. Um, and so I think it is, kind of a secret to success which is like making it such that failure is not an option yeah yeah i would love to hear about the work you did at mofad that you're proud of what did you have going on that that got you excited exhilarated yeah you know i mean i think um what i feel like we did really well is um really get people thinking about um yeah, just food culture in a different way and really moving, um, hopefully just elevating the way people think about each other. And I mean, for me, like, I always like thought of like MoFAD's like goals as being like sort of the three C's, which was like curiosity. Like I want you to like, we'll teach you about like bread and the wonders of bread, but then take that same curiosity and apply it to all the other foods on your table, like sugar or, you know, orange juice and like these things that like are so quotidian but are really amazing when you dig down into them um so curiosity you know and caring getting people to like think about each other as human beings and to care you know a great way to do it is through food and one example of that was um we did an exhibition on um on chinese american restaurants you know otherwise known as chinese takeout in the u.s and what we did was we contextualized it as like you might think of this as like, oh, we're getting Chinese. But what the the real like bigger story here is Chinese American restaurants were essentially like a survival mechanism for Chinese Americans to economically hold on in an extremely hostile environment in the US. And it's a product of an immense amount of ingenuity um, and entrepreneurship. And there are families behind these restaurants. They're not just like fungible places. Like, you know, you have people have a tendency to like just think of them as like kind of fungible. And we present that human side to it. And I my hope, you know, I think and I think we succeeded at like having a lot of people come through and think about the human side of things. And then the last thing is just connection, which is like the last C from Moped, which is like, you know, having people feel connected to their food again and really thinking about where it comes from, what it means, and connecting to each other through food. So um, I'm really proud of what we did with that. And one of the things that was super important for Moped was we had a constant flow of, of school kids coming through. So we had um, hundreds and hundreds of uh, New York City schools that sent their kids to the, to the museum and uh, learn about things like the story behind Lomain and what like that really means. Yeah. I mean, I'm also curious about how that intersects with your work, you know, with African food as well and like yeah. food ways. Um, just like 
your work seems to be all about filling in the gaps of our understanding of like where food comes from and like why it, how it functions and like what it's about and how it like exists in our lives. So what is what are those gaps that you're filling with like African food ways? Yeah, I've, one of our very first advisors whom um, I tapped for MoFAD, and I got to know her back in 2012 or 2013, is uh, Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Um, who is, mm, you know, mm-hmm. the inspiration behind this recent Netflix series, High on the Hog. Um, mm. And, um, you know, she and I and others at the museum talked really early on about how there needed to be an exhibition or some kind of major storytelling of, like, how uh, Black Americans have laid the foundation for American food. Because there's, it's like, it's the perfect storm in a way of like this massive level of influence and then this super myopic general public understanding of it, which, you know, people think about black food, they Mm -hmm. think about like soul food essentially. Um, When in reality you just open your pantry or refrigerator and like the legacy is right there. Um, And so Mm -hmm. the only thing that kept us from doing it back then was we didn't feel that MOFAD was a mature enough institution to take it on. And like, I did not want to be the guy who fucked up telling the story of black contributions to American food. <laughs> and so like, you know, we wanted to wait until like we had like the, a few exhibitions under our belt and the ability to really do it the right way. And so, um, after in like 20, uh, 2017, I guess, was it 2018? Um, we had wrapped up, uh, this exhibition called Chow making the Chinese American restaurant, which was very successful and told the story of Chinese American restaurants um, and how, you know, it's a product of exclusion and also entrepreneurship. Um, and we we're like, okay, it's like, it's time. And so I uh, started working with uh, Jessica. We brought her on as the lead curator for this. And then we built out our advisory committee, which is like full of, you know, an immense lineup of like super badasses um, and, um, and then we got working on it. And so we spent about three years developing the exhibition. And um, like one of the crowning achievements for this exhibition, I have to say, well, there's oh, there's so many good parts about this. But like the, the overall point of the, ex- the exhibition is called <laughs> African slash American colon making the nation's table. And it is all about 400 plus years of contributions by African-Americans to the food that we all eat as a country, not just African-Americans. Um, and, oh man, I'm just like, I was, it's such a good exhibition. I'm so excited about it. And we got it like all together and it was like ready to open, uh, last year and it was supposed to open in April and, you know, (laughs) stuff happened. And so, uh, it's been postponed. (laughs) Um, but like, that was, that was a little hard to do, um, to have to postpone that. But, um, but yeah, we got, so get this. We acquired, so we found out that the Ebony Magazine test kitchen was going to be demolished. And uh, I was I was actually in D.C. visiting the Smithsonian Museum on African American History and Culture when somebody sent me the New York Times article about this. And it was this ma- this kitchen that like out of like Justin, do you read like Ebony Magazine? Yeah, no, hell yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, like, and that's something like a lot of like non-black folks don't understand the influence of Ebony magazine when like, as I understand it for sure, it's like, was like a household item, you know? So like literally like the recipes like in this magazine went out to like black households around the country and, and actually across the African diaspora. But like we found out it was being demolished. And then, 
like I and my team like submitted a, a bid to basically take it and try to res- save it and restore it. And we got it. So we got the Ebony Magazine Test Kitchen. And it's like this crazy 1970s wow. psychedelic kitchen, like purple and orange swirling like wallpaper. That's awesome. And we have it. We restored it. And you walk in there. It's like you're in the 70s. And this is the place where all the recipes that went out through the Ebony Magazine, they were developed. Um, and like, you know, presidents ate in there, like famous musicians, celebrities, everybody, you know, came through that kitchen. Um, and so that's like one of the, the centerpieces of the exhibition, which really celebrates uh, because Ebony Magazine was like a, a, a was I think what's, what was notable about that was it was Black Americans claiming their influence on the cuisine. It was like a Black run, Black owned magazine that was like putting out Black recipes, and so it's a perfect it's a perfect sort of celebratory centerpiece for the exhibition. You're listening to the Extra Spicy podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com/pod. For me, what I've come to realize, like you talked earlier about your, you know, growth personally, like when it comes to food and even food, like as a language, right, that could bridge the gap between cultures. Me being an African-American kid, like I feel like a lot of us kid, Jesus Christ, me being an African-American man. You're an adult. An adult. Yeah, damn, I'm tripping. (laughs) I'm a grown ass man who yells at loud noises outside the window. The, um... But, you know, like African-American youth in this country, at least in my generation as well, has unfortunately like a limited understanding of the influence Africa yeah. has has had on the food yeah. that we eat. Right. Like we have this very Americanized, like focused version that's, you know, it navigates soul food, but we don't really understand it. And for me, I'm not even going to lie to you. It wasn't until probably like college age where I had friends that were Nigerian that who would come here to go to school, right? And then we would have conversations about food. Also, we would have conversations about what it means to be African-American, what it need, means to be African mm. living in America, like that difference. And then we would talk about, you know, whether it was like then explaining, you know, black-eyed peas from Nigeria mm. or like the roots of rice in Nigeria, stuff like that. Like that's when my understanding of the influence of Africa had on the food that I was eating. And I thought I knew that. And I I really didn't understand the complexity of it. So for Peter, like, was there a moment that you can think of or like a period where you're like, oh, wow, like I'm, you know, I'm learning much more than I, than I thought I knew already. Yeah. I mean, honestly, my first aha moment was reading um, Jessica's book, High on the Hog, which, you know, everybody should go out and read because it is just a phenomenal book. Yeah. My aha moment was really around that and like talking to Jessica and like I think like you know we could talk about all of the specific parts of like the black legacy and on the American table like you know refrigeration being invented by you know by by an African American or the potato chip being invented by George mm-hmm. Crumb or French techniques coming from James Hemings or Edna Lewis pioneering the farm to table movement or all these other things. But like what really kind of like brought it home for me was like kind of connecting the dots between the fact that this country was built on slavery and for a long time, you know, who was in the fields, who was cooking in the kitchen, who was brewing the beer, who was distilling the whiskey, you know, who was cooking and making the recipes, who was setting the table, who was clearing the table, and who was even, like, clearing the chamber pots. 
you know, it was enslaved Africans. Mm. And so um, when you think about it in that sense, it's like you don't even need to know what the specific outcomes were, but you know that there's just no way that there is not a heavy influence by enslaved Africans and their African-American descendants on what we eat today. Um, and indeed, like, I think mm. when you start, like, unpacking that more, then you really start to see, like, all the foods that are in your kitchen, on your table right now, that trace back to this. Um, and what's, you know, and it's all the more sort of foundational when you think about the fact that the U.S. is a country of relatively recent immigrants. And so, of course, a lot of what makes us, like, American and what we eat is, like, the layers of immigrant, you know, cultural waves that come through the country. But, you know, what's at the core is really, like, indigenous and African-American, like, food culture. Like, that's what was the basis. And then we built, and then the immigrants sort of layered on top of that. And so I think it's so important. And this is why, like, for MOFAD, it was just such an important exhibition to do. Because if you really want to understand what American food is, I would say there's really, like, actually, like, not just indigenous and african-american but i also say like there's three things that you really have to understand is is native american african-american and actually industrial food and those are the three things that i think are like truly mm. what makes like american food what it is so um and plus all the immigrant influences of course but the core of it is really those three things yeah i'm also curious too because like we keep talking about the um like we keep mentioning the the netflix series mm. high on the hog uh hosted by stephen satterfield oh, yeah. who so, like, we could say Steven's a friend of the show, right? Um, I mean, maybe. I don't even know if he listens to the show. <laughs> I don't know so. either. We're just, we're just going to seem cool and say friend of the show, Steven Satterfield. We both know him. He's incredibly talented. It's, it's, it's an amazing oh, yeah. show people should watch. Um, but, you know, I, I felt like also it had perfect timing because over the last year, obviously, with, you know, the country's, the George Floyd protests, the country's racial reckoning and there's just been this, uh, I don't know, you know, there's like an earnestness for mm. people who who might not have paid attention to like African-American and African influence on this country. Now they want to learn more about yeah. it. But do you think like this last year is going to be uh, like a lasting boost to that? Is it going to be like a small bump in interest? Like, I want to hear if you're optimistic or pessimistic about it. Um, I, I always optimistic. Um I'm optimistic about most things except for just a handful of things like uh, climate change. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, I, I think, I think there has been quite a sea change actually because, you know, and I saw it really mm -hmm. on the front lines because when I was starting with working on this exhibition, there was just, there was so much skepticism about like, even for folks who are like, I get it, this is important and we need to tell a story, but will will this get visitors, you know? Or are we just going to have, like, only black visitors coming? Um, which, you know, I didn't really see that even as a, as a problematic outcome, but, like, nonetheless, I think for, for some folks, it's like, you know, really felt like it was still going to be kind of a niche thing. And, I mean, I faced that, like, pretty much... Even all the way up to opening the... Ex like, when the exhibition was about to open um, last year... I mean, like, I honestly, like, fundraising for this exhibition was really tricky. Um, there's, um, you know, there's not, like, a deep bench of black philanthropists. And the few that are there are hit up in every which way. 
Um, and yeah. there's not a lot of, and then for a lot of other folks, it's just a, it was a hard thing to raise money for. Um, and like, I think that in after that's the summer of 2020, I think it's just a very different atmosphere and it is going to be, there's going to be a certain aspect to it. That's really ephemeral. But I also think about like, you know, always trying to think about like, how do you seize these like brief moments where everybody is even, even if they're being performative or whatever it is, like harness that energy mm-hmm. to try to get something that sticks and just move things up a few notches. And I do think that, um, that like there's some stuff that has happened that will stick. Yeah. So I want to take this moment to think about your work at Pinterest now. I want to pivot. Um, speaking of sticking, let's talk <laughs> yeah. about pins. Uh, <laughs> but I'm curious. I don't use it. Mm. Um, but I am very aware of how social media like Tumblr, like Twitter, like TikTok, they all have their own sort of siloed food cultures. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is Pinterest food culture? Yeah, you know, um, it's funny. Um I, um, you know, I made, I made a decision to sort of pass the baton at MoFad, um, last year and it was a super hard decision, but it was like, kind of like felt like doing this exhibition was going to be a really good sort of point at which like, this was the exhibition I've been thinking about from the beginning. It's time to like kind of move on. And it was just like, it's one of these projects that really is so like all consuming. And then, you know, I was kind of like thinking about what I wanted to work on and I had some folks I knew were at Pinterest and they were talking to me about this and i have to admit early on i was like really skeptical because like i'm not you know i'm like i was in like a not the nonprofit business like i i didn't really and i'm not really huge on social media and like it was like really it was a little bit i had some trepidation about it but then like you know the thing i came i've come to like really realize is like you know pinterest is truly not like other platforms um everything about the con- content on Pinterest is about inspiration and ideas. And so whatever you put up on like Pinterest, it's not going to be like a, whoa, look at me and my friends having brunch. It's not cool. You know, people <laughs> like doing clap, clap or hands up and being like, yay, you know, like you look beautiful, you know, and like have so good to see you like, you know, a plus. And like, that's not really what Pinterest content's about. Pinterest content is about like, here's how I poach my eggs and how you could do it too. And like, you know, it's always like, there's a, the way I describe it to folks is that when you put content on on Pinterest, it's like with a, a a generous spirit, you're thinking about how to give to the viewer. And so um, the thing that really got me hooked was like, okay, so Pinterest is now embarking on this whole new project of setting up all this new, like this sort of, um, creation platform where the currency is ideas and inspiration and it's new i mean like pinterest was always before more of like a curation tool rather than a creation tool and this is a new thing and so now that the what i'm working on is helping to think about what does this new content landscape look like on pinterest how do we want these ideas to look right and there's like 470 some million people who use pinterest so it's like a whole nother scale from like any kind of brick and mortar museum and Frankly, that's an exciting prospect. It's just been an interesting sort of um, evolution for my work on MoFad, which thought about like really like hands and feet in the door and people coming through and school kids coming in to like now on a digital platform where it's like hundreds of millions of people all around the world using this and thinking about how do we make the content on Pinterest, you know, as inspirational as possible, as thoughtful as possible, as inclusive as possible. And then also, um, 
yeah, I mean, and, and really like it, there's a great potential here for like shaping food culture. So I think to me, it's really exciting. Um, and it's been just a, just a thrilling challenge to be working on. So how does it, I mean, do you think that spirit of generosity has like leaked out into mainstream like food culture? Like, does it have that sort of impact of like people making like feta pasta from like a TikTok video? Um, <laughs> are there are there any sort of like you know emergences that that happen from the platform? Well, you know, I'd say like my I think look, I'm not going to like knock TikTok or Instagram. <laughs> I think there's plenty of like really good stuff on those platforms, but we all know that there's also stuff people do on TikTok that is purely about entertainment and less about actually trying to convey information to the viewer. Um, and, you know, I do want to emphasize though, TikTok's not all like vapid, like empty stuff. There's a lot of really interesting, thoughtful stuff happening there too. But yes, a large fraction of what happens on TikTok is just like purely entertaining content. And to me, like what's compelling about Pinterest is like, well, there are so many brains and ge- like brilliant minds and ideas going into this whole new like creator world that's like exploding right now i would love for those neurons and that like energy and creative spirit to go toward actually sharing ideas and helping each other like grow rather than purely just entertaining yourself and you know so to me like or entertaining others and like and just like you know chasing impressions or likes whatever and so uh to me that's like what's compelling about it um is being able to like try to be a part of that. And we definitely um, are thinking about like how to make Pinterest a positive space where people are, they don't like go on and then like spend a lot of time on there and then walk away ultimately feeling kind of like worse about themselves, uh, which can happen, you know, I like it's like a common feeling for a lot of people on social media. And so, um, so I like being a part of that, you know, and I think, um, I think the idea of like content being on these kinds of platforms is something that is that is where things are going. You know, people are going less to websites. They're going less to like yeah, just going less to websites period and going onto these like platforms for their content. And so um the more we can like really draw people to the uh, space where it's about positivity and inspiration, I think that is a, I think a worthwhile endeavor. Mm. Okay. And like as an aside, and you don't have to answer this, but I'm very curious, like <laughs> what do you think was on Donald Trump's Pinterest boards? Since I he heard that he was banned, right? So he must have had a couple boards up. Had, you know, had to. I have no idea, actually. And I didn't even know if he had been banned from Pinterest. I feel like Pinterest, he's so not Pinteresty. You know, it's like Pinterest <laughs> is where you go to like, Pinterest is where you go to like figure out activities to do with like your toddler and like, you know, DIY home improvement things, like how to make like easy brownies and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> it's like hard to imagine what he'd be doing. Um, maybe, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Hairstyling <laughs> tips. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, there, there would have to be, there would have to be a couple of photos of like steaks well done with ketchup on them, I'm assuming, right? Like that could, that could be a safe food assumption. Am I yes. wrong? Yeah. Okay. Hammered hammered steaks with a side of ketchup. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Donnie's Donnie's easy recipe for like hammered steak. <laughs> well, we also want to make sure we ask you about like counter jam too, because that is like yeah. your thing at the moment. And yeah. we'd love to hear about um just how I don't know, like 
the whole music and food thing, we've talked about it on the show before. Um, we talked to a vegan restaurateur who is also a rapper um, and mm-hmm. rapped about his vegan restaurant. So, like, it's a thing, right? Like, music and food and, like, musicians are also, like, some of the greatest eaters because they're always out late. Mm. Um, but can you tell us about, like, you know, if if we have listeners who have not heard your show, like, are there particular episodes that you would recommend? Yeah, so... I mean, when I think about like the foundations of what makes human culture, human culture, you know, like the two things that come to mind first are food and music. I mean, you could go to anybody in the world and you cannot share a single word, you know, of language in, in common and you can give them a, a dish or you can play them a song and you can connect on that level. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, um, it's just a really compelling idea to try to explore our cultural identities through the food we eat and the music we listen to. And so that's the basic premise behind Counter Jam. And um, uh, I also know, you know, I think there are actually not a lot of podcasts that really go down the line looking at cultures one after another. And so each episode is just about one cultural identity. And we talk about, we've done Korean American, we did Nigerian cultural identity, we did like, uh, we got an upcoming episode on Jewish cultural identity, um, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, a rule is that all the guests have to identify with that identity and all the musicians whose music we play have to identify with that identity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, you know, it's we don't talk about like what's going on in their lives now or like the new book that's coming out or whatever it is. We talk about what makes them who they are and like the food that they eat that reflects that. And then, you know, and the music, too. Um, and so... Um, it's just kind of like a dream little like show concept for me. I'm like so grateful that Food 52 um, was willing to kind of like take me up on this because it's, you know, I think it's a little different from like uh, a lot of shows that are out there and um, definitely a labor of love. Um, and uh, as far as like my favorite episodes, like my two favorite episodes so far have to be, first of all, I did one on Korean American identity, which I, you know, I'm Korean American. And so that was the first episode I did because I had to like start with myself and, um, and my mom is one of the guests. And so, you know, it's one of my favorite people on the planet, like having her on as a guest is like super meaningful. We also had Roy Choi and Margaret Cho on, which is great. Um, and then in terms of music, I had Korean American artists playing, but I also played one of my own songs, um, which I hadn't actually really played for anybody since I had like recorded it. Um, so, uh, it's this sort of, um, I don't even know what genre I'd put it into, but dystopian hip dystopian hip hop song that I did, <laughs> um, and um, and so that's what that's probably one of my favorite episodes. The other favorite episode I have is on Nigerian culture, and um, I don't know if y'all are like fans of Nigerian music at all, but like I got Femi Kuti on as a guest, who is like the son of Fela Kuti. And they're like just massive like pioneers of like wow. Afrobeat music in Nigeria, and. Femi brought on his son, Made Kuti. And, um, and, it, and then I had Ego Wodem, the actress from Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live. And um, what ensued on that episode was just like so perfect. It just came out so perfectly. I mean, you first of all saw this like transcontinental connection between Ego and Femi and Made and the way they perceive Nigerian food culture from different sides of the ocean. And then mm-hmm. Femi and Made, just like their father and son love comes through so clearly in the episode. And I don't think they really talk about food much because they usually get asked about music. 
And so it's just such a candid sort of family moment where you hear them talking as like a father and son together. And it's truly magical, I have to say, like what I was able to sort of sit in on. And I was just like slack jawed and like big smile on my face throughout the whole thing. I just kind of let them go with it. Um, so I, I really love how that episode came out. Well, if you don't mind, could you just tell us where listeners can find your work? Yes. So you can find Counter Jam on the Food 52 Podcast Network. And the podcast is available pretty much wherever you listen. So on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and really anywhere else you can find podcasts. Amazing. Well, thank you so much awesome. for talking with us, Peter. Thanks so much. Okay, so I didn't manage to find Justin's Pinterest page, but I did <laughs> find a lot of Jello recipes, which I'm very excited about. All right. I'm interested in this. <laughs> but that's all we have for today. Thanks again to Peter J. Kim for being in conversation with us and to King Kaufman for producing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.